welcome back to Season 2 of the Human Instruments My name is Ian Corey, and I'm Joseph Yuishi identifies Kozuka as Shonen Bat, but doesn't remember his attacker having braces. Kozuka recalls his attack on Yuishi, but when he tells his story, it appears as a fantasy. In it, he's a paladin from the RPG, stalking Goma. He can identify the monster, even in human form, by its glowing red aura, which conveniently only holy warriors can see. Ikari and Kozuka quibble over details, one insisting that he wields a sword and magic boots, the other countering that they're an ordinary baseball bat and a pair of rollerblades. The back and forth nearly derails the interrogation, but Kozuka continues, only after affirming that Ikari's aura is yellow, not red. Curious. Ikari is flummoxed by Kozuka's account and thinks he's bullshitting, but Maniwa sees that the kid's story matches the text in the Holy Warrior RPG guidebook. Back behind the two-way mirror, Yuichi also identifies Kozuka, while the would-be Holy Warrior describes the pair's shonen bat encounter as an epic battle on an ice field. Now, Ikari and Maniwa are juxtaposed into Kozuka's fantastic retelling. The reluctant Ikari looks like a fish out of water in his detective garb. But Maniwa has fully bought into the fantasy, appearing as a wandering scholar. Maniwa accompanies Kozuka to a distant tower while the kid tells him more details about his rich fantasy world and the magical MacGuffins he seeks in it. Ikari struggles to keep up conceptually and physically. At the top of the tower, the trio find the old man from the hospital, who appears as a wizard and tells Kozuka to seek out Goma's next victim, Princess Flyer, meaning Harumi. Harumi appears in the memory as a fairy queen and steals Kozuka's RPG guidebook. Meanwhile, in reality, Harumi identifies him as her attacker but can't recall having any connection to him. Kawazu also identifies Kozuka. Fittingly, in Kozuka's delusion, Kawazu looks like a frog. Ikari protests, but Maniwa continues to accompany Kozuka on his fantastic voyage into a floating fortress, where the two face off against Harumi. Kozuka manages to defeat her, and in so doing confirms Ikari's suspicions, apparently, that he's the real shonen bat. 
In Kozuka's memory, defeating Harumi opens the portal to the next level of the game, which summons a huge monster that defeats him instantly. This finally throws old man Akari over the edge, but Maniwa sees a clue in the game book, a hint telling them to seek out an old woman. Kozuka warns them that Goma hasn't been defeated and still threatens the world. In reality, Maniwa takes Akari to a bridge where they finally encounter the homeless woman that they lost track of in the first episode. Episode six, fear of a direct hit. With a typhoon threatening the city, Ikari and Maniwa interrogate the old lady in her tent. She won't identify any suspects. She just wants to see her granddaughter. The woman's family broke up when her son-in-law's company dissolved, so there's nowhere for her or her granddaughter to go home to. Simultaneously, a young woman named Taiko wanders the city, remembering how she was bullied as a kid for being, quote-unquote, daddy's little girl. Ikari, typically, can't stand the sidetracks in the interrogation, but when he puts the old woman to the question, she says that Sagi was alone during the very first attack. Elsewhere, Taiko recalls the way economic hardship fell on her family, and the way she tried to ignore it so as to not worry her father. The typhoon arrives, and she receives a phone call, then asks, How dare you call me? She insists the house, and it's unclear which house she means, is not her home. And when she does, the old woman's shack is blown down in the typhoon. Afterward, Ikari disregards Kozuka as a subject. He's a copycat, Ikari insists. Thereafter, he interrogates Sagi again. Taiko? Taking shelter from the rain continues her flashback, where she goes onto her PC to make a birthday card for her beloved father, and on the PC finds surveillance photos of her taken by a hidden camera in her room. In the photos, she's undressing. Tycho, understandably, absolutely loses her shit, destroying her room until she finds the camera and breaks it. Back in the interrogation, Ikari tries to get Sagi to lose her shit, too, insinuating that she faked the Shonen Bat attack. They even found a lead pipe at the scene that she could have used to harm herself. In the typhoon, Taiko calls the person who reached out to her earlier, her father, promising to destroy everything of his and to undo all of his happiness. But just then, she sees someone about to be washed away in the overloaded storm drain. It looks like her at first, but it turns out it's the homeless woman who's been washed away. Distraught, Tycho nearly breaks her phone and then collapses, begging to forget what's happened to her. In a bit of cross-cutting, we found out That's exactly what Ikari thinks Sagi wanted when Sagi hurt herself and faked the Shonen Bat attack. Then, as if on cue, Shonen Bat appears on the bridge and clobbers Taiko, at the same time sending Sagi to the floor of the interrogation room as well. Finally, we see who Taiko's father is, Hirokawa 
who's being forced to evacuate just as the typhoon washes away his brand new house. As Maniwa helps Ikari carry Sagi to the break room, he looks back suspiciously at the Maromi doll. The next day at the hospital, the old woman's daughter finally comes to visit her. And in another room, Hirakawa is reunited with Taiko, who has no memory of who he is. At last, now that time itself has come to a halt, I am free to torment our listeners with an ad read. Ha! Nice try, Joseph, but you forgot one thing. The Human Instrumentality Podcast doesn't sell ad space. Think again, Ian. In my perfect world, the podcast is completely listener-supported. Why pummel them with corporate sponsors when I can use the listeners themselves? You don't mean... That's right, Ian. We've now launched a Patreon. So, if the listeners love our fine-tuned anime discourse, they can support us for $1 a month by going to patreon.com slash human instrumentality pod? It had better come with monthly bonus episodes. Indeed it does. And for $5 a month, I'll even read their names at the end of the episode. It's totally optional, of course. That is, if they don't want to be frozen in time forever. Not bad, Joseph. But you forgot one thing. Oh? What's that? Nobody is going to visit any websites or sign up for any bonuses as long as time is frozen. You're trapped in this ad read with me. Touche. You've outplayed me once again. But I'll be back. And so will this ad read. <laughs> so again, uh, Langdon, you mentioned my anime list i don't know how you got my anime list and what you want to talk about it but well i i making i've been list. monitoring He's you checking it twice gonna find out if you like yuri on ice langdon's gonna <laughs> judge all your taste so, in fairness to yuri on ice it's beautifully animated i just don't care about ice skating so i don't care about the show um although i did watch haikyuu and i hate volleyball so my gay sports anime has to have a specific flavor, okay? Basketball, I'm in. Baseball, that's the gayest sports anime of all time. Ice skating, two on the nose. Can't do that one. But you guys run a podcast on anime, so presumably you know about anime. Japanese animations, of course. No, Presum we know nothing. Presumably, you also like these things. Now... As someone who uh, is an American uh, from a certain generation, I'm certain you remember what people who like anime were like when you were growing up. <laughs> I hear a laugh. I think I think that's yeah. a knowing laugh. An in intimate awareness, for sure. Yeah. So maybe too intimate. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, as you become an adult, you're you know you did Evangelion, and now you're doing you know a whole season on Satoshi Kon, who's remarkably sophisticated producer of both manga and anime he also wrote a novel um just like as i'm certain you guys know you've, you've done research on this stuff tremendous stuff generally liked by people who have really really 
good taste in art, not just anime. It's like it's great art. What if the people who aren't fans of this guy, the people that you remember from middle school and high school, made an entire compendium that's like, this is going to be language that'll resonate with you. The Metal Archives, or perhaps the Goodreads of anime. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, here's the problem. I, that is There's funny. a lot of problems. I will admit that that is funny. There's, but here's the issue is that it accurately describes two websites. And I know you're talking about my anime list, but it also describes Reddit. And Reddit may have helped destroy democracy. That's true. That's a bad website. That's a terrible. People always trash on Twitter, but at least on Twitter, everyone knows that everyone's insane and just like screeching at full volume. That's what you open the app to do. You open the app to expunge all your mental illness in a concentrated dose here so you can be normal in your nor- in your regular life. Um, where Reddit is a bunch of people who don't know that they're insane, all intensifying each other's mental illnesses unknowingly. Or actually, let me let me do a counter metaphor. Because you, you, you made me think of something. Okay. So, like, earlier on this podcast, I have quoted facts from Anime News Network. A website that I used to comment a lot on when I was in high school. A website that is mm, 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 questionable, although I appreciate the up-to-date Google-translated press releases. I really do, okay? My anime list is to Anime News Network, as 4chan is to Reddit. That's right. They're both bad. One will give you a disease. <laughs> so I bring this up because my anime list has much like IMDB a top ranked of all time because users of a site can rank anime and things like that and much mm-hmm. like the IMDB user ranked top films of all time uh, it is a deeply diseased list if it were simply I mean sometimes you run into like barometer lists where it's things that are like all good stuff Other times you run into the other kind of barometer, which is all bad stuff. They think it's good, they're naming it as the best, but actually it's fucking horseshit. And you can use it to know what's horseshit. My anime list is cruel, though. It is a wicked, wicked site because it's fucking randomized. (laughs) Like, you don't know, based on a score on this site, anything about the anime. It could be good, it could be horrible. They're number one of all time with 2.8 million ratings is full metal alchemist brotherhood the less huh. good full metal alchemist That's fight right. me That's fight right. me irl joe is right will, joe is correct i will go to war over this they I, fight real hitler in the regular one it's mm, they you grr. know what they put over every single dragon ball all of gintama in fact i've never seen that one gintama so is the second highest rated or sorry fourth highest rated fourth Fourth now. It's above all of Evangelion. Hunter Hunter's number nine. Oh, that's pretty good. You know what doesn't show up until like 50? Evangelion. These people. They are, uh, they're sick How inside. have they been led astray? Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, before we uh, get to anything remotely. Go- oh, sorry. They have Hajime no Ippo. You know, cl- classic. At 40. Uh, Akira doesn't crack the top 70. Like, no Studio Ghibli <sighs> films are in the top 150. Not to it's, correct you while we're live, but Spirited Away is at, like, number 23. 
Yeah, and Monon Princess Mononoke is 53 now that I'm looking at that. It doesn't matter. I can lie. I can, I, I can tell lies. They're, they're, fact check me at home, dorks. <laughs> My point is, this site is diseased and for sick people. They put Death Note 2 above Ping Pong. Ping Pong, one of the greatest anime I've ever fucking seen. Death Note, dog shit. I'm not, not a school good. shooter, so I don't like Death Note. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I'm coming out swinging tonight. Oh my tonight. god, Light is such a narc. I like I I've been sort of tr like trashily like late night watching Death Note just because it's like <laughs> I don't have to think. It's like it's just some absolute bullshit to like it's shapes moving that my eyes can look at, you know. Uh, yeah. And I had, I just completely did not realize, like, watching it as a teenager is one thing, and be like, oh, this is this guy's kind of badass. And now, like, watching it as a adult, like, this guy's a fucking narc. This guy sucks so much. He's such a dweeb. Like, I would bully this man. <laughs> yeah. A, a show about a, a young man who says to himself, hmm, the cops aren't cop enough. I should be the god cop <laughs> what if cops were even stronger <laughs> they put, but just me they put the fate stay night movie above all of dragon ball just like this is a diseased website this is the website where if you go to a white anime fan and go what's good this is the kind of shit that will come out of their mouth this is what keeps people from learning that anime is good. Things that you guys are doing are the opposite of that. They're the antidote to it. They're like, hey, there is actually art in this art form. There's quite a bit that you can enjoy. High and low brow. We're not going to act like it all has to be, you know, genius level calculus all the time. That's not, you know, like all art, it has spaciousness. Not here. Not here. Here, it's like you gave yourself syphilis until your brain got full of holes, like some Swiss cheese. So... I feel like I must ask just to start to drag this thing towards the relevant topic for today's episode. Does Paranoia Agent even make it onto this top list? Uh, I'm going to look up exactly where its ranking is. It only has a 7.67 on this, which means it probably doesn't uh -huh. even crack the uh, top 250. I'm going to do a quick scroll. We're going to we're going to find out. I'll tell While you in a moment. Scrolling, I'm just going to go ahead and say uh, maybe eight minutes into this episode is my estimation. Our <laughs> guest this week is Langton Hickman <laughs> from Trouble Scene in the Death Sentence podcast. Welcome, Langton. Coming in hot. <laughs> good to have you here. <laughs> I, I'm bringing the heat. All right. Good news. I'm at 300 and I'm not there yet. Oh, buddy. Hey, Langton, while you're scrolling, I just want to know, uh, what do you think of Stein's semicolon gate? Oh, you mean the number two best anime or number three best anime of all time as uh, voted by the users of my anime list? It's fine. I, it's I'm, fine. I'm just it's saying, how can it be so good that only the second half of the final season of Attack on Titan, which is not done, knocked it out of, of the coveted silver medal list? It's um, also worth noting that Attack on Titan is bad and made by a guy who loves Hitler. Bad show. It's bad not just because of that. Also the director of Death Note. Uh, the show will be done by the time this podcast comes out, so I'm going to go ahead and spoil uh, the end of the manga. Um, they accidentally give it like an anti-fascist message at the end, sort of, and then like have to walk it back. Like two pages before the end, they like walk it back and they're like, oh, you know, actually the genocide is okay. He's not such a bad guy. 
That is like a, a literal line of dialogue in Christ the fucking comedy. I, yeah, I, I would just like to, for the record, when I called Attack on Titan some fascist trash in the first season, Joseph pushed back against that characterization. Um, <laughs> it wasn't done. <laughs> like I said, they were working towards something. And I needed to see what it is. Now it turns, I have. It turns out the thing they were working towards was that Jews have evil spells and will turn you into giants and kill everybody unless you do the Holocaust. That Fucking show is Christ. so fucked up. <laughs> and yeah, bad. But wires. That's like, it's bad outside of, outside of the fascism. But Spider-Man, but everyone's Spider-Man, but with swords. All right, good news, guys. Spider-Man do be needing swords, though. I'm at... That is true. I'm at the 1,100... It's rank 1,139. That should be the number that's at the end of one of this old guy's fucking equations. In, right. Uh, es- Escaflone <laughs> is above it. This is stupid. Hey, Man, Escaflone's tight. Let's... Okay, so... <laughs> We know that there, this particular television show, Paranoia Agent, that we're discussing today is not of the purview of the diseased <laughs> common anime mind. However, it is of the purview of our trillionaire genius brain uh, energy for this particular podcast. We're, I'm really excited to have you on for these two episodes, Langdon, because uh, th- this is a really weird pair yes. <laughs> of uh, of episodes um it's kind of the oddest couple i think of any of the ones that we're doing because we have on one hand one of the most self-indulgently wacky things <laughs> that satoshi Kon has ever ever did during his lifetime and then one of the most like austere very serious very con- tightly controlled episodes maybe the best episode of the entire show i i would certainly not uh, be shocked if anyone said that um, "Fear of a Direct Hit" is the best episode of the of the season, but you know there are other contenders. But I think that it's a it's a really good pair uh, to highlight uh, the absurdity, but also the seriousness of Cohn's work. And I think Langdon, you're you're the perfect guy to to have on board for that. Thank uh, you, project. I'm very very happy. I am admittedly a little bit bummed that I don't get to talk about my favorite episode of the entire show, which is episode eight. That was the one that really happy family. That was the one that really mm, struck yeah. me when, I, like a lot of people, my experience or like a lot of people, like like the very small number of people who watched anime when they were in high school in secret because they didn't want to be called anime kids. Because uh, I already liked heavy metal and prog rock and I in weird books. I didn't want to. I wanted to get laid at some point. And I did mission successful. Thank you, young me. Um, uh, I watched this like really late at night on Toonami and didn't know shit about like mm-hmm. I'd, I'd heard of Paprika and Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress because if you were into the artsy anime stuff in the 90s, they sort of floated in the same circles as like Akira and Evangelion and Serial Experiment Lane and all that kind of stuff. So I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know who the director was or anything, so I had no grasp on what the show was. And the very first episode I saw, I was like 13 or 14, and I see Happy Family, and I'm like, oh my god, I have to watch this whole show. This seems so dope. And then, of course, like uh, like all people who watch one episode of this show and then try to watch it, I then get intensely fucking confused as no one that I've watched ever comes back. (laughs) (laughs) 
Which isn't quite it's true, a, obviously, but it is much closer to true than in any other show that I think I've ever seen. I, I'm glad to hear you tell this story because it makes it makes me feel a little bit more edified in that it's almost a perfect mirror of my experience with uh, Paranoid Agent. I was more familiar with Cone. I like knew when it was coming out. I knew that was the Cone show. I knew that's supposed to be good, um, right? Uh, but similar experience. And, uh, you know, it's it, from that point of view, it's not surprising that uh, it's ranked 1,000 on, like, an artificial game where the points don't matter, right? Um, right, right. But if we're, but if we're going to play uh, a bad whose line is it anyway, let me pull up a different, slightly more respectable, but probably, like, <laughs> in, in, in some ways, less, um, even more ignominious uh, listicle system. Once again, I'm, I'm going to talk about the IMDb rankings, right? And this is mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. This is interesting because the uh, Paranoid Agents episodes ranked by user rating on, on IMDb are instructive and uh, uh, very tight, right? So happy family planning. Um, if we're playing bingo at home, that's got to be, uh, you know, drink. You know, this is the the season two drinking game. Someone mentions the happy family planning episode. You take a shot, right? Right. <laughs> so there you go. Happy family planning, number one. Double lips, number two, my second yep. favorite episode. Okay. I Final episode, that. number three. Don't talk about it. We'll get there. Golden shoes, number four. No entry, number five. Don't talk about it. We'll get there. No <laughs> entries. Great. At number six, fear of a direct hit. Also, I would say, I think my favorite episode although mm -hmm. double lips gives it a run for its money happy family planning run for its money final episode run for its money like i think these are all like and that's half the show that like that's almost 50 percent of the show is like i would consider very very good and the rankings agree um fear of a direct hit's got a 7.9 happy family planning has an 8.5 like the biggest leap between those two is between golden shoes and the final episode right and the rest mm -hmm. of the show it's much of the same People in the high sevens, low eights, whole thing. Um, until you get to episode 13, uh, the, the bottom ranked episode, The Holy Warrior. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which just has a flat seven. Wow. Um, These people are stupid. I wouldn't even give it a flat seven. Joe, are you coming swinging for this shit? I, look, there's a lot of like, in, there's a lot of like neat things about this episode. There's a lot of things that I like kind of dig about it or at least it, in theory dig about it but mm -hmm. in execution uh, i don't need this it feels like a prototype of the yuasa energy that uh like obviously yuasa being influenced by cone would tap into where it feels like he thought up a highbrow thing, but it was like two weeks ago, and he didn't write notes for it, and now he's just sort of improving it, and it has this like loose, loosey goosey kind of like almost conversational feel as he's trying to tell you this really highbrow, metafictive concept, but he uh, he keeps slipping in his uh, his dumb little dick jokes and whatnot. Yeah, it's beautiful. I beautiful. I, I will say that like upon my first watch ever of Paranoia Agent, this episode absolutely threw me for a loop i think that there's some of that is intentional on the the part of the creators i think this episode is supposed to stick out kind of like a sore thumb 
um, because it helps us kind of like fall into uh, Ikari's shoes as being like sort of a fish out of water for the entire episode. The problem is that it's also like the jankiest looking episode <laughs> of the season by like a wide margin. A huge birth. And that's just kind of like, you know, I, I, I feel, you know, this isn't like a magma diver or no, not a magma diver. I like magma diver. This isn't jet alone, you know, like jet alone just sucks and doesn't really tell us anything useful. outside of useful. It's like, it's a complete throwaway episode. This I think does give us a lot of interesting stuff about paranoia agent and about like the world of its characters and about the the mind state of the two de detectives it gives us a lot but it's just kind of like more interesting to think about than it is to watch you know like do we find its attempts at humor funny like is the holy warrior funny or not because it's definitely trying to be funny like Part of the reason I think it has such a, a kind of like weird art style is because it's trying to highlight a certain kind of like more slapstick, sort of like what we talked about with Tokyo Godfathers, where there's a bit more of a, a looseness to the character's design so they can get a bit more animated and a bit more uh, overreactive in their facial expressions and whatnot. But uh, I, I don't think the punchlines are there really. <laughs> In this episode, I don't know. How do I, you feel about this one, Langdon? So, admittedly, you're talking to, if you know me, the fact that I would like Satoshi Kone. Not gonna surprise you. Gonna be, that's a straight down the middle. It, that's, that's an easy ball. This is one of the reasons why his sense of humor is a lot closer to how I feel like mine is. Where there isn't really a joke. It's just a really weird time. Like, there's there's no setup or punchline. Or rather, there's only setup. There's a perpetual series mm -hmm. of setups. And the joke is, hey, wouldn't this be really weird? And someone's like, yeah? And he's like, yeah, that's it. Moving on. And you're like, <laughs> I find that shit fucking hysterical. Especially, like, coming from someone like him, where, uh, especially because it's enmeshed with, this is the first episode where we very deliberately get the metafictive nods about Lil Slugger himself. Obviously, this has been played with prior to this, and there's a murkiness about, I mean, you, you get in the first two episodes with, um, uh, when the doll first comes to life, and you're like, yeah, oh, maybe this lady yeah. isn't quite... Maybe she isn't quite there. And then you get, obviously, the stuff in Double Lips, which is playing again with very standard stuff for Satoshi Kone. The question of the circle of reality. When the creator creates something, are they also creating it backwards in time? Like in a Nietzschean sense of like, or like a Borgesian circular ruins kind of thing of the wizard who births a man into time. All that kind of stuff. Uh, and the fact that he decides to relay that that moment of like, no. Lil Slugger is real, or is he? He is real, or is he? Uh, and then also he's like, by the way, I'm really into the Marx Brothers right now, and Buster Keaton. I just, I really right. love when houses <laughs> fall down and people just aren't hit by the house that's falling. And you're like, can you tell me about, like, the thematic bit, though? And he's like, no, I'm thinking about, like, see, it's a whole front of a barn, but the guy doesn't get hit at all. That's amazing, right? <laughs> and you're like, Satoshi, please. <laughs> It's almost as though the whiplash of these two episodes feels like he realized that he dropped a lot of the, the like, really heavy tone of the earlier episodes. Like, even 
as as poorly rated as Golden Shoes is, it's a fucking great episode because of the way that it plays slowly on this. It's highly rated. People people like it. Oh, I thought you had said people don't like it. And I was like, that's no, it's 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 up there. It's but okay. it's not as high as double lips. Anyway, but but That's no, fair. please. Continue, but yeah, it's like I'm like I'm into this. You build this really heavy atmosphere of them playing with these like really tense themes and adult subject matter in a way that doesn't feel cheap or schlocky and then this straight up again that's this, i brought up the yuasa thing where um that's the director of like devil man crybaby and japan sinks and he also did a show called kaiba and tatami galaxy and a bunch of other stuff has very much that like mm-hmm. loose half comedy thing like he's being witty rather than being funny it's a very like french right. it reminds me a little bit of the movie playtime oh yeah i oh. can kind of see that okay um, I get a lot of Gilliam from this episode. Yes. Like I mean, the big foot coming down at the end of it is, is extremely Monty Python. Oh yeah. And this, even, there's a lot of like uh, Monty Python and the Holy grail kind of humor in, in this episode. I think speaking of reminiscing on people that we knew in middle school that liked anime, I think that's another long, <laughs> long gone archetype of, of the guy that quotes Monty Python on the Holy grail only that was me i was i was sad about that you know i mean so he, I, I think he's aiming for monty python and the holy grail i think he's landing at baron munchausen <laughs> is my take and you know what you don't need to hit monty python and the holy grail but if you're gonna hit like a directed by gilliam pure wacky movie you gotta give me um give me time bandits like you gotta like at least make it like a little more entertaining and and like the problem here is like as we said before stoshi khan uh funny my opinion not his strong suit you know i've never really had a guffaw at at any of his even even though like i love a lot of his stuff i've never really had a guffaw as opposed to Mm. we're always comparing things back to anna we're always comparing things back to evangelion yes 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 we know you you've already listened to the podcast you know we think the the power outage episode is legit funny um make me laugh me go haha uh, I miss that because um, my thing here is like it's all shtick like there, there, you're right. There isn't a punchline, but I don't even think there's a setup. It's just a bit they're doing right. right? And like and like the bit that. is, oh, the kid doesn't live in reality. And like one of the detectives can groove with that and the other one can't. And it becomes like this sort of like generational interplay. And they mm-hmm. literalize that by kind of like just making a Kari, I guess, the the butt, quote unquote, of the jokes. But like the the way he's the butt of the joke is, oh, he needs to run up a spiral staircase really fast, which I think is a maybe a, a, a reference to an episode of Inspector Gadget. <laughs> it feels like a Looney Tunes kind of thing. Yeah, like the thing that I would like to kind of clue in on here. I've been trying to set up as much as possible, like detective Ikari having this rising tension and uh, dissatisfaction with the world over the first four episodes that kind of reaches this like fever pitch here. And it's treated very much as like a source of comedy, like haha, old man doesn't understand RPG game, you know, <laughs> right. and refuses to understand JRPG game. Uh, whereas his younger coworker can kind of speak the language enough to, you know, further the investigation. And I actually think that in some ways it, it, I enjoy thinking about the Holy Warrior more as like a, a 
drama about Ikari being out of touch. Like one of my favorite scenes in the episode, because the way this episode is structured, it's, you know, these sequences that are taking place within the confession and therefore like within this kind of like half-baked dragon quest looking environment. And then the other parts of the episode are the various victims of Shonen Bad or Little Slugger, whichever you prefer. Uh, I'm happy to jump back and forth between both names because I like them both. Um, the interviews confirming that this kid that got captured in the last episode is indeed the person that attacked each of the victims. And so Ikari has this interesting meeting with uh, Harumi Chono where he attempts to use some of the like uh, animal symbolism that's like kind of driving a lot of the uh, the design of like the fake RPG world. He asks her about like, do you like butterflies? And right. it's it's him trying to get hip with the kids by using like Maniwa's style of interrogation and he falls flat on his face doing it. It's like that to me is the most interesting part of the episode because it's like him attempting to do what Mani was doing and failing. And that just causes him to even further recede from being like, this is all bullshit. This is, we're not actually doing real police work, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I definitely like it mostly from the, um, and there was a, a Vogue with an anime, um, pre the matrix. I'm not sure if this was made prior to the first matrix movie, but I know that Satoshi Kon was very influential on that. And it, sits within, um, bringing this up on purpose because it's the same kind of interrogation that you see in, like, Serial Experiment Lane or Ghost in the Shell of, um, lattices of reality and simulacra versus simulacrum, which is a big thing in Satoshi Kon's work right. in general of art. Mm -hmm. We don't understand the world as we experience it. We need art to understand the world, but then the art we use to understand the world we believe to be universal when it is not universal. It is our lattice, and this creates these funny circular wheels of interpretation and experience. You see plays of that obviously earlier in the series itself with things like the Satoshi Kon's favorite archetype, the literal creator character who creates something uh, through madness and then that takes over their reality with the the creator lady from the first episode. Yeah, Tsukiko. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have obviously the, the plays of reality where the one escort creates a, a Maria to, to live through. And then the question of is Maria becoming real in a very like literal sense beyond just the uh, the play as a, a fake name to do this work under that. Likewise, you get the experience of someone else's lattice of reality of approaching the world through the lens of like a gamer, which obviously you have to sort of keep in mind when this was being made and also how how prescient it was in certain ways where we see game language seeping into how people parse things like fucking current war in ukraine and you're like no it's not a fucking video game they're like real people and there are consequences to actions you can't just be like i'm gonna get a gun and save planet be like right. but yeah, but yeah, yeah. we get that view specifically from outside of someone or from someone outside of that lattice, that it's like, what is it like to yes. witness someone interpret the world, but using a lens that you don't understand, so you can't make sense of what they're saying? And so it presents itself as slapstick, but that's more because, from a perceptive sense, that's what it's landing at for the older detective. It's like, this is nonsense that this person is trying to convey to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... I I think it's an interesting to think like generationally and like time-wise this came out in like the mid 2000s which is an interesting uh point in time to consider specifically using like 
JRPG aesthetics because I think for American audiences, like the 2000s are kind of like a, a, a dip in like the popularity of the JRPG as like game genre. And it's like, I, I was thinking a lot today about like how if this were to be set in America, it would be a first person shooter. So like to your point about like war and uh, you know, the sort of like violent ideation in the language of video games. I think like in America in the 2000s, this is like as school shootings and whatnot are going on the rise. And I think that there's similar concurrent trends of like youth violence being like a, uh, a, a source of anxiety in both cultures, but it, for very different reasons, it, the way that this is framing it, you know, like it, we would have this sort of like law and order kind of episode about like, what's going on with these kids? They're doing Molly and playing Halo, you know? And instead we have this like kind of much more lighthearted uh, version of this escape into fantasy where the fact that it, the real life consequences is this kid running around hitting people in the head with a baseball bat is kind of turned into this joke of it being this children's toy of a, of an RPG. Right, right. That's well, it, I, you, you are right. I think especially that like in America, this would be like the first person shooter, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about what's Gus Van Zandt has his like, it's not Columbine, but it's Columbine movie. It's got a dumb elephant. Name. Elephant, right. I shouldn't call things dumb. I apologize. It's a great um, movie. You're 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 goofing. No, no. Elephant's a good movie. Um, but it like the least effective part of of Elephant is like the scene of of the yeah. two like, <laughs> shooters like psyching up before they go to school. And one of them is like pointedly playing Doom. Right. 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 Like, I thought about Doom a lot over the last like week preparing for this episode. For uh, that, sure. That's like me most right. of the time. Love that Doom. Yeah. You're like Langdon. That's <laughs> not what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 Doom's a good game. You're right, um, Ian. Doom Eternal is very hard. That DLC, very challenging. <laughs> in, it, it's worth noting that, like, one of the recurring things in, in Paranoia Agent is that, is that Khan was drawing on um, sort of rip-from-the-headlines type almost true crime stories to inform his, his various ideas here. Yeah. And there is, like, a different... There's a different social video game worry that, like, was present in Japan at this time that took a minute to get to America, but like it, 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 he's sort of like mashing the two together. He's mashing up the school shooter on the one hand, on the other hand with um, uh, this idea of the RPG fan who can't live in reality, who mm -hmm. escapes, who escapes from reality and, and start can't, can't tell their and can't tell reality from fantasy. Right. And like, right. That's the problem with both arguments is like kids can tell fantasy from, from reality most of the time. I, I think, yeah, I, that's something that even earlier in this show was highlighted in the very first episode. You know, we have this like I keep bringing this up just because it's like, I don't know, it, it kind of like when I watched it this time around, it really stuck with me of like the news anchor being like children can't tell the difference between reality and fiction. And it immediately cuts to kids being like Shonen Bat's an idiot. He should be able to tell that this isn't a video game like the kids already get it, you know, right. It's the older people that do not understand this language and aren't able to interface with it in the way that Langdon described that 
see it as a source of anxiety and of uh, like cultural degradation or what have you. And it's worth noting that that Cohn is also pretty smart about his usage of does media make us blank that he isn't as foolish to 100% put his eggs in the basket of like, if you witness the bad art, then you immediately become the baddie and there's no agency involved. Mm -hmm. You just are immediately corrupted instantaneously and, and perfectly. But he also isn't so foolishly naive, which we get as the counter response to that, which is that our experiences with art have no place in the feedback loop of how our psyche is constructed. Like we see that argument come up a lot. And this tends to come up in response to arguments of like, should there be censorship or not is ultimately like the argument amounts to art has no power and never affects anybody ever. So there's no point regulating it because it never impacts anyone in any way. So you don't need to get rid of it because it can't be bad because of that. When an obviously it's a bit more toothsome than that. It is one Mm -hmm. of many things in our lives that informs ways that we approach others, ways that we can form cognitive nets or cognitive networks in order to to parse the world around us. They are rarely the only thing, but they are part of that network and they can have different kinds of effects in that network. The same way that your mental health isn't just your neurochemistry or just your environment or just traumatic experience or just stress levels, but, you know, has this complex interrelationship of all of those. You can't pretend one of them isn't in there in order to make sense of all of this. You'll get a really faulty read. He's a lot more sophisticated with that and tends to... That's something that I like in... a bit in this episode is that the only person who's, like, strongly resistant to the idea that the RPG actually immediately made this boy dumb and hyper-violent is ironically the person outside of it. It's because he doesn't speak it that he's like, that doesn't explain why this happened. Like, you're all fucking dumb. Like, Mm -hmm. him liking a video game isn't why he nearly murdered these people with a baseball bat. Am I the only one who's not fucking stupid enough to believe that? Well, but at the same time, you're, I mean, you're right, but at the same time, it, 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 my read of the show is that it, it really, it, the 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 show does portray that at least in this episode that makoto does have trouble delineating fantasy from from reality i like right. i don't i don't think they tell the story in a way that he's giving them a line so right? i so i definitely think that but i think again you have to interface it with all the other things this is one it's a thing by satoshi kone so the the question of can he tell reality from fantasy is you can ask that question without filling in who he is, or you can use they, obviously, because he has stories about women, and that will describe nearly everything that he's ever done. Like, nearly all of it. That's that's Opus, that's Perfect Blue, that's Paprika, that's Millennium Actress, that's most of the episodes of the show. But mm-hmm. then the more sophisticated thing that he asks is the next step, are these not both reality? Are not both of these interpretations actually occurring? If it is what he is experiencing, is that not a kind of reality? Is it just a reality you aren't privileged to and that you don't get to experience? If it's affecting the real world, is it not reality? Just because you didn't see it, like, your experiences, I don't have access to, even if we're both in the same room. But that's certainly part of reality. You then have Mm -hmm. the third bit, which is that video games aren't his only his only anchor for, like, ways that people can be wrapped up in... And, you know, he draws the line that, like, the creation of art is a kind of delusion. Which, I mean, obviously that's... 
way more deliberately foregrounded in something like Millennium Actress where that it, and Opus, where that is the fucking plot um, in a lot of ways. But the first episode of the show and sort of the creation of Lil Slugger as this archetypical, like, villain happens through the mind of someone who creates. And we get to see that the act of creating for her is almost a delusional thing. Like, she sees them as real. And there's a soft implication that she's been having this block in making new works because they aren't real to her the way that the first, the way that her Maroni breakthrough was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that likewise you get again with the sex worker with Maria, that it is this again, this ties back to the Borgesian thing from the circular ruins that they are creating something that is delusion until it is real. And then the fact that it erupts into reality retroactively makes it real in a certain sense. It's like the Borges short story, The Circular Ruins, is about um, a wizard who goes into the woods to dream up a man and make him real. And Mm -hmm. the way you have to do that is you have to imagine every fiber of every nerve, every fiber of every muscle, the curve of every bone, the uh, shape of every blood vessel. um, And you do this bit by bit until you dream up the entire man and then have to conceive all of it simultaneously. And then the man becomes real. And the, the thing there is... The only thing that separates them from reality is that they're untouchable by fire, which sort of represents the creative spark. And but, but when they're birthed, they're birthed forward and backward into time. Like the minute they become real, people have memories of them. They have a birthday, mm. things like that. It's not just that they appear in the woods. It's that they appear into the mesh of reality. And that's sort of... I would be fucking flabbergasted if Satoshi Kon had never read Borges. That just, that would blow my fucking mind. <laughs> this isn't quite as eruptive as that, admittedly, because Nietzsche also has the same thing of the, that which eternally recurs, um, being the same kind of thing, where it's a force, like, Mozart would never have described his work by which is the most or least jazzy, but we can, because jazz as a metric allows us to also retroactively evaluate things that predate its existence. Because it's that kind of eruptive concept. He does that in earlier episodes. He's not doing that here. And I don't mean to say that. But I mean to say that more as when we put it in network with all the other elements of the show, I'm less bothered by the fact that, admittedly to your point, do I think realistically a JRPG fan would do this? No. No. They'd have to go outside. I didn't go outside when I was playing all those Final (laughs) Fantasy games. I didn't think we'd get to talk about Borgia while on this episode of <laughs> Paranoia Agent, but that's exactly why we asked you on for this episode. You invited right? me. I'm um, going to talk about Borge, Hegel, and Deleuze. It's going to come up. You're, you're <laughs> Maniwa right now, and I'm Ikari. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm the one sitting here saying, this is, fucking, this is fucking bullshit. The difference is I have not relapsed on my nicotine addiction. Fuck you, Satoshi Kone. Well, again, I, I, I love that that's the, uh, the metaphor of Ikari, you know, returning to smoking yeah, is his right. own escape. It's his own way of falling into a, a sort of comfort zone. And it's like the same nostalgic short hope cigarettes that he mentioned, you know, in the previous episode. And so really it is a generation gap, which is why I like that it is the, the younger cop who is in between the kid who was arrested and the older cop that is able to walk between both worlds the one who is able to play along with the fantasy because i guess maniwa must just be a gamer which is like a nice little touch but then flips it on the kid at the very end and it's like you're not going anywhere 
Like he he's being very deliberate in like the way he's leading this investigation forward by pretending to be a helpful NPC until once he's gotten all the information he needs, it's like, you're not going to get a chance to replay this game because right. I'm, I'm still a cop and you're still under arrest. <laughs> even, even if I know what, like, you know, who cloud strife is, that does not change the fact that I'm a cop, you know, you, it's, nearly, it's real... you nearly killed a number of people. <laughs> <laughs> or did he? That's a great yeah, that I like, do we believe the testimony is another interesting thing, because the kid at one point says, you know, uh, like the holy warrior can never tell a lie. But uh... <laughs> so <laughs> like, I'm of I'm of two minds. So obviously I watched. Happy Family Planning It was the first episode I saw and I watched to the end of the show from there. And then because of the beauty of Toonami uh, and the limited number of, like, licenses they had at that point, when they got to the end of a show, typically they just restart the show. So I get to watch the show in this really weird... Now, this is a really good show to watch in that Mobius strip fashion, because yeah. it, it's very, very much true. it's very much designed so you can perpetually rewatch it and sort of get, like... The, the way that I could look at episodes, specifically one and two, and the way that they established, like, big plot twists fairly late... I'm like, oh, oh, wow, that's that's just that's just there. OK, uh, nice, nice. This is well planned. Good on you. Who would have guessed Satoshi Kone? Good at writing. Crazy. <laughs> but yeah, the, the question of the question of the reality of these things has already been put in place. That's sort of like the big. I'm not so sure if this is because I'm rewatching this or if I would have felt it the first time, but it feels like the big twist of this episode is like, wait. Lil Slugger's real? What? Because they, they play with mm -hmm. they play with this image early on where all she sees is the old woman, turns her head and looks back, and there's nowhere for the old woman to have gone, and she's not there. And the old woman has this thing on her back that's the same shape and color as the baseball bat that she will eventually be hit with. Uh, and then she has a panic attack and gets hit. And then from that moment, it's always when someone's having this panic attack Lil Slugger erupts to answer their panic attack to hit someone. So it's like, okay, mm -hmm. I assume you got this isn't the first Satoshi Kone thing you guys have covered in the season. Yeah, so you're like, okay, this is, maybe this is... And then the fact that they drop, like, no, he is real, fucker. Um, obviously, they, they play with the fact that he's able to explain every attack except the first one. Yeah. Which yeah, is, right. is the big thing of, like, wait, but that doesn't... What? And they even had played with the headline element in earlier episodes of the headline and media stoking a frenzy around the notion of Lil Slugger. And no one else gets attacked until it becomes this, like... A media event. Yeah. yeah. I love that about this episode where it, it answers you and then you realize that it doesn't quite fit and then the episode stops. And they don't, they don't go back to this thread for a good bit in the show. Even in the... The very first scene of this episode is, you know, the parents, like a group of parents in the neighborhood gossiping about uh, Will Slugger getting arrested. And it's sort of left hanging at the end of their conversation that they're starting to believe that perhaps the real Will Slugger was not arrested or that the myth is continuing to grow. Like the toothpaste is out of the tube at this point. And people are going to continue to speculate about the nature of Shonen Bat, of Little Oil Slugger, however we want to call it. 
even after he he's been concretely caught and put into custody by the police like the idea is now just out there and it's growing out of the cops control it, it, it raises a similar question of like in the case of copycat crime which obviously this is one of the ideas that it's playing with is mm -hmm. th this actually ties in a lot of ways to a uh, to discussion of of bands and stuff like uh where you have one band fragment into like three sub bands that all share the same name and there's a there's a band currently touring called Ecstasy, E-X-T-C, that is formed from the ex-drummer of Ecstasy, who quit after, uh, during the recording sessions for their second record. And it's the official Ecstasy continuation, but they're not legally allowed to record new music. They can only play the catalog, but they don't play mm -hmm. the songs that he originally played on, because those aren't the ones that someone wants to hear when they go see Ecstasy play. And so it starts creating the classic notion of the simulation and simulacrum is even if there was a specific person who did commit some of these attacks is shown in bat several people or is shown in bat this one thing that sort of erupts into reality through multiple people and mm -hmm. obviously he, right. he he picks the more sophisticated postmodern answer which is that it's it's both because if there was no archetype that they all that was erupting through them, they would have been known as four completely separate attackers. They wouldn't have been linked in any way. But their linkage isn't incidental. It isn't like a fluke that they're all connected by this thing. They are all deliberately connected to an idealist identity that exists outside of the real that funnels into the real. All things in anime return to Digimon. In the uh, well. <laughs> conversation between Kozuko and Maniwa, at one point they say Goma, which is like the name of the villain inside of this RPG, is from another world. It is from outside of the world. It is this thing that exists beyond even the, you know, made up world of this like role playing game, which I think kind of lends some credence to your the point that you're making that like Shonen Bad exists beyond the realm of like the physical world at this point, it's starting to grow into something that is bigger than flesh. Also this, this I think like really confused me the first time that I saw this episode, but during the interrogation at first, before they go into the full on RPG world, the arrested kid mentions that he's able to see the aura of those with Goma. You know, he's able to see the glowing red around people. And then he suddenly looks at his hand and like holds himself in fright and then like kind of calms down and says like, oh, don't worry, you, you guys just have yellow aura instead of the red aura. That, I think, is pretty pointedly saying that he sees the red aura on himself. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely un uninterpretation. I, I also think it's interesting that, you know, red is a really important color in Paranoia Agent. It doesn't mm -hmm. happen a lot in the color palette. It's a huge part of like the paranoia agent poster. Yeah. Right. right? And it, it, like, this is a show that has like a very specific use of color. And I think the most common like use of red or anything close to red you get uh, foreshadowing is Maromi's pink. Right. Totally. Which is is always like the only pink thing in in the frame, right? Similarly, when he says to the detectives, "Oh, your aura's only yellow." The things we've seen that are yellow 
or the golden bat, the golden bat and, and the roller blades. Right. Right. And, and so it's not just that he's seeing like some of like Shonen bat in himself. He's seeing some of Shonen bat in the cops too, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they're, but they're different pieces. Right. And, and I, I think that's, he sees in, in him some sort of corruptibility, right? But he sees in them, like, the tools that give him the capacity for violence, right? And uh, uh-huh. that's really, really fascinating to, to me. Um, I, I love that little scene. Um, I, I was going to say, Langdon, you're, th- this idea of, and again, not to foreshadow too, too much, but what I've been, I've been hung up on, on your thing with the circular ruins since you brought it up. It's a great um, fucking story. I haven't thought about it since college, but this idea of something being brought into reality that, that echoes forward and backward through time as you, as you like have, have brought in. See, look, you've just done it there. You've pulled it into the conversation and now I'm looking back through what we've already talked about in Paranoia Agent, and I know what I know is going to come, what I know is going to come not only at the end of this series, but in this episode of the podcast. And now I'm seeing it, right? You've, mm-hmm. you've implanted the idea in my head, and now I can't yeah. escape it. Why have you cursed me with this knowledge? No, Buddha power. I'm bringing you through <laughs> suffering to enlightenment. That's, that's the path. That's what samsara is. It's what I do to the humans of this planet to, to uplift you, to ape consciousness. Well, let me tell you what. The only thing that really caused me a lot of suffering in in this episode is is the fantasy imagery. Cuz I think we're I think we're like we're <laughs> getting to we're getting to fear of a direct hit. I, yeah. I think yeah. and I want to get there, but before we do, we I, should at I least should... acknowledge that the 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 art kind of sucks. It's bad. <laughs> yeah, I all this talking has been about the conceptual space of this episode and how it plays into the conceptual and thematic space of of the show and his body of work. All of that's great. This episode looks like dog shit. If this is yeah. the first episode I saw, I'd be like this anime is bad. Which is funny because it was storyboarded. Here's my segment. You ready? It was storyboarded by Mamoru Sasaki and Nanako Shimazaki, uh, I believe Shimazaki also, yes. So Shimazaki was also the episode director and uh, Sasaki was the animation supervisor. Okay, so they're sort of, they're the two-hander on this episode. Mm-hmm. And considering how bad it is, wow, they must have not enjoyed working on Paranoia Agent because Mamoru Sasaki was an animator on Evangelion, the last two episodes, and also uh, on End of Evangelion. Right. So and, someone who does know how to make a good-looking piece of art. Like, yeah. There's evidence. Yeah. And before that, before Evangelion, his previous two credits were Memories and Ghost in the Shell. Sham. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this guy, he's G. Uh Okay, and uh, Shimazaki, here's where you say everything comes back to Digimon. Not quite, but he was a storyboard artist for all of Monster Rancher. Um, Love that. Which is what he did right before Paranoia Agent. I don't. Um, You're dumb. Monster- well, not the show. The show's bad, but the game's fire. I had a yeah, Gran Turismo uh, Velociraptor. He had a tracksuit. <laughs> I'm part Slav. I love tracksuit. 
tracksuit dinosaur? I'm on the spectrum. You gave me a Slavic dinosaur? I'm losing my fucking mind. Who among us hasn't wanted to buy a PlayStation 1 and a copy of the original Monster Rancher just so we can get a Mariah Carey, all I want for Christmas is you themed monster? Beautiful. It, I, there That's you go. Real, That's right. Me. I remember that Easter egg. I don't remember what that monster's called. It was the one-eyed thing with the tongue. Yeah, and mm, uh, weird. Swayzo. Swayzo. That was a Swayzo. Okay. Okay. Pause. <laughs> let's ever, let's everyone acknowledge that Ian, the most enlightened of the three of us, is the one that knows the names of the monsters in Monster Ring. <laughs> That's fucked up. No. That's twisted. That's swag out of swag out of his mind. <laughs> We're all of like the Maniwa generation in this scenario, you know. Like we can, t- I can talk the language, you know. I, I've I, I know what's up game. here. You know what I was doing just yeah. prior to this? Horizon. It new and bangs. By the way, it has spacemen. Uh huh. Robot, you know, robot dinosaurs and spacemen. They're men playing, from space now. Playing Dark Souls right before doing this was very funny because you know. Like it's a guy running around in armor with a sword hitting monsters on him. It's like yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm doing in Dark Souls. If, if you know, any, but uh, if any game could make someone commit mass violence, it would be a Dark Souls game yeah, from Soft. Uh, yeah, only because. And this is where I reveal what I've I've told both both Ian and Joe this before. I big fan of games. Play them a lot. I'm pretty good at them like i normally play on pretty hard games or pretty hard difficulty all that kind of stuff i got so wrecked playing fighting ornstein and smo in uh dark souls one so fucking wrecked i got fighting game salty that's the saltiest you can get in the video game space that is that is the most mad that you can possibly get i got up and i took the disc out and i drove to a GameStop and i sold it I just ejected it from my life. And I've never I've never played one to completion since. I've played played them at people's houses. I respect them. I read a lot about them. They're great design elements, the, the way they incorporate lore. Fantastic. I will never play one again. No. It crossed the bridge. <laughs> it full comboed me from full uh, uh, from from health. It wrecked me into the corner and then I died. And I'm too angry now. The one of the major differences is that the art and the the world design in uh in a FromSoft game is usually really good and it is not good in this episode of television. Like the creature design and like the world design is like some real like bargain bin RPG kind of stuff going on. I wonder if they had ever played a game. You'd think they would have. Like generationally that i'm assuming they weren't like in their like mid 40s when this thing was being made but like i i don't know off the top of my head but like it it looks as i can find out like dragon warrior which a lot of this is based on is one of the biggest franchises in all of japan dragon warrior Mm -hmm. uh the adventures of die is one of the highest selling manga of all time despite being dog shit just because it's dragon warrior it's just, it's Dragon Warrior and a Shonen. Oh my God, that's going to sell a million copies. And it does. So it's like, this is not an unheard of thing. This is in certain ways, almost like, almost like the Simpsons level of cultural saturation. Like Dragon Warrior is fucking everywhere. And yet this episode looks like they heard it described to them by their like nine-year-old kid. And, like, didn't go into the room to look at it. They're just drawing it based on, like, what a child that they don't respect has verbally described to them. To be yeah. fair, that is what is happening in this episode. <laughs> well, this is well, this is my point. 
This is my point. And now we're going to get to a bit that I have workshopped with Ian multiple times before we started recording this series and I haven't used yet. So now I'm going to get it. Here is mm, you're right. It is it is a joke about how bad they think the thing is that doesn't actually reference the thing that they're actually fucking critiquing. That is what they're doing with the fantasy designs um, in this in this episode. And like, I get it. You know what? Skew skewer slayers skewer fantasy star online um slayers is not a good anime fantasy star online is a an mmo and they're all dog shit as far as i'm concerned um i'm not interested in any sort of multiplayer experience (laughs) however when you this is this is the thing that makes me think maybe those trolls on my anime list have a little bit of a point this is what drives me crazy about satoshi Kone. watch it watch it joe watch it joe thinking (laughs) stop thinking don't do it don't do it Mm, i'm watching you turn this is like a zombie movie i'm like watch it joe (laughs) (laughs) here's what i'm saying he satoshi Kone makes me feel like i'm ben fucking shapiro He's critiquing, like, anime culture. But I'm like, but you also participate in anime. And that is, that is why I hate him, because he puts me in this position where I look at his work and I say, you're just making a straw man argument. When in my heart of hearts, I want to agree with him. Like, I want to agree with him. I mean, but when you right. give the monster weird googly eyes and like apparently have uh do all your keyframe animations in 30 fucking seconds um <laughs> it's actually much more than that thank you steven for helping ian and i understand exactly how long animation actually takes i knew it was long but goddamn, is it long there's a reason Even why you so. see all those korean names in the credits they are they have a traditionally very abusive work environment there that's why a lot of it gets farmed out to korea where they have even worse workplace regulations for animation studios than japan the place where people have died making anime and we'll get Here's to the that thing, later. <laughs> Here's the thing, Langdon. We don't see their names because we skip through the credits on Amazon Prime. Our time is valuable. You're stupid. You're stupid. The, <laughs> no, the opening theme and the ending theme are part of the fucking show. I will never skip a theme. Never. You mother... Are you telling me you'd skip Rock the Dragon? You fucker. I wouldn't watch Dragon Ball Z. Um, you stupid son of a bitch. You stupid <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> You really are the Ben Shapiro of this. <laughs> I'm the, this is Ben Shapiro is makes too much of a shrimp dick to love a Chad like Goku. Ben Shapiro, bitch ass, raising his own sons. Goku would never do that. He's got more important shit to do, like train and not raise his sons. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! I'm, I'm desperate. Gohan's I feel like a I'm little bit onto the reins of of two horses running in different directions. That <laughs> motherfucker learned how to them. read and is replicating Goku's abuser. Of course, he doesn't want a part of that child's life. And who likes Goten? Nobody likes Goten. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure someone is literally horny for Goten. That's that. right now. Um, but look, Ian, the reason that you've got two wild, virile fucking horses running in opposite directions trying to (laughs) trying to yank your shoulders out of their sockets for virility based reasons no um (laughs) i wish but no um (laughs) i did um i learned it from watching you Um, (laughs) 
we're running away because we're terrified of the raw existential dread that is fear of a direct hit. Yeah, this episode is really fucked up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's a there's no fun up. to be found here. Yeah, not a shred. It's a and it's insanely powerful episode. Like this, obviously, not saying there's no fun in it as a knock whatsoever. This I'm. I'm a big fan of what might be described as downer media. One of my favorite films is The Turin Horse by Bellatar. That's a two and a half hour long movie. It's black and white. And there's like eight lines of dialogue. It's mostly about failing to raise a dying horse because you've driven away everyone who could ever love you. Your wife's dead. Your daughter hates you. And a priest says you won't get buried in the graveyard. All you got is this horse and he's dying. So I'm a big fan of downer shit. It's very powerful, very... Uh, this this just puts me in, like, a dark place. This episode, just... Anytime I've seen it, I've just, like, stopped what I was doing right after it was done and just spent, like, an hour just, like, doing nothing. So I think let's maybe try and break apart on a technical level what Fear of a Direct Hit is doing. Uh, because I think these two episodes are an interest. The the thing that they do have in common is it's the first time that the show has zoomed out enough to now give us a recap of what has transpired in the first chunk of episodes. Right. Right. Like, Holy warrior is like a retelling of the early part of the show through a JRPG funhouse mirror. And actually like, just because I know I've alluded to this multiple times, like this Holy Warrior is the Millennium Actress redux in the show where you have yeah. the two characters investigating uh, someone else's story and are being led along through a subjective, uh, you know, fantasy retelling of their experience. The difference is that it's instead of the older colleague showing the younger person like Japanese cinema history, it's instead the younger colleague dragging their older colleague through you know dragon quest whereas fear of a direct hit is a recap in that it is the it's the first episode where we are now returning to the scene of the crime we're getting down to brass tacks we're interrogating like the now they're interrogating the older homeless woman who is at the site of the first attack and we're also seeing how all of the other victims of shonen bat have continued on since the attack there's this sort of montage quality of the storm is affecting everyone. It is hitting the entire city. And we get to see that that's the case by seeing what everyone else is up to now. There's also another new character, uh, and that kind of is the the driving force of the much darker shit that's going on in this episode. And so we can we can discuss that as well. But I just wanted to lay the groundwork a bit. Well, thank you for laying the groundwork before uh, this typhoon absolutely levels it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I mean, it. So here's the thing. Here's the thing for me about this episode is here's another what take, we're ready to take another shot. Uh, people who folks who are playing at home. Uh, if you want to talk about how every con joint is about great editing. Mm -hmm. This is this is the episode for for that um when i see not to just skip over all the disturbing uh stuff in the middle because if, if you were also worried about uh age not appropriate horniness from millennium actress there's some of that here too just in the opposite direction right. this scene at the end 
where uh, they're accusing Sakiko of of essentially like uh, self harm of like faking the original uh, Shonen Bat attack of hurting herself with a piece of junk, basically. When she insists no, and then you see the 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 bat hit, and it's as if she gets hit by the bat again, but there's nothing there. Yeah. And she flies across the interrogation room. That, to me, is, like, one of the most powerful images in this show. Yeah, period. Like, yeah. that's the moment, that's the moment where, where like, I, on my rewatch, that's the moment where I sat up and I was like, oh, that's right, this show doesn't fuck around. Well, it, it did the last episode. Now it's not going to fuck around anymore. Yeah, it's, it is the moment where, uh, you know, there's the magical realism has sort of been, the dial has been cranked slowly over the course of these first six episodes. And Fear of a Direct Hit is we get the, in, a few different instances, all told through this editing of like things happening concurrently, but across space. You know, like, so Tycho, the girl who is uh, wandering alone for most of the episode, receives a phone call and we only hear her side of the, the phone call. And it's intercut with uh, Ikari and Maniwa interrogating the old homeless woman. And so we're hearing only one half of two different conversations and we're not hearing the other side on either end. And the the phone call that Tycho is on, she says, I just wish this house would be destroyed. And then the old, the homeless woman's shelter vanishes in, in the storm. So she gets her wish across space and across an edit to an unrelated situation. Uh, and suddenly the, the, the woman is no longer there in the ruins of, uh, of her shelter. And that's what the first moment you're like something beyond reality is occurring. Even now escaping the fantasy land of, uh, of Holy warrior. Now in real life, quote unquote, we're starting to see a certain blurriness of, uh, of reality and in, in a way that we hadn't quite seen before with the detectives. I just, it's, it's hitting me knowing what this episode's about, how even in attempting to talk about it, we're avoiding the, uh, the pitch black elephant in the room. Sure. Uh, well, my problem there is I didn't like do a trigger warning at the top of the episode because you just started talking about my anime list. The second <laughs> I got on the call. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and say, this is your fault. Langdon. That's fair. I was going to say, and, and here's, here's my, here's my redemption shot. I'm, I'm shooting it. Here's my time to say, um, Trigger warning, we're going to talk about uh, pedophilia and, and uh, child pornography and incest here for the next, I don't know, rest of our lives. But at least uh, for a while for the rest of this yeah. episode. Yeah. So the other thing that this episode does uh, editing wise is, you know, what, we've talked about like the sort of braided narrative thing, you know, of like a character from a previous episode sort of showing up and guiding us into the new character that's introduced as in, in the center of the new episode. And at first glance, this episode does not appear to be doing that, except that it is returning to the old woman who has sort of just been in the background for much of the show. But, and the, the show try this episode tries to be kind of tricky with, with you, you know, cause it's the, the homeless woman is talking about her granddaughter and we get these like 
jump edits like a, to Taiko, the girl who's wandering the streets of Tokyo. And just through editing, he's kind of trying to trick you into thinking that she is the granddaughter. She's not. Uh, if you're right. paying attention, you should be able to tell pretty quickly that her father is a uh, Hirokawa from a man's path. And, uh, uh, he turns out to be not, not just awful in the way that he's awful in a man's path, but awful in a way that, uh, is difficult to say openly because it's so heinous and disgusting. But that new house that he's been using Yakuza money to, to fund and build turns out that he also installed a camera in his daughter's room to watch her undress. There it is. Yeah. Pretty messed up. It's not clear what he's, it's not clear what he's doing with all these still images or, but uh, nothing, nothing good. Yeah. Nothing Um, good. The the usage of the empty space by Satoshi Kone around that question definitely feels more implicative than, than anything else it's yeah yeah i think it's you know for we talked a lot about like for example the uh the simulated like rape scene in perfect blue and how explicit and jarring and upsetting that is and i think it's in to cone's credit that he's able to imply and bring up all of those same feelings of revulsion with actually showing you very little uh and that to me is really impressive, but yeah. it is also fucking horrifying in this episode. I'm just going to go ahead and say, um, I, I, there's still some teeny bopper undies in this scene that I, I, I personally didn't want. Um, yep. You know, I can always explain it away in Evangelion because I'm like, well, yeah, they're 14, but they're drawn like they're 26. So I don't really care. Right. Whereas like Tycho is drawn in typical, like sort of weirdly realistic cone fashion. Mm-hmm. Tycho is drawn like a young teenager. And uh, wow, that uh, that scene is uncomfortable. Although her thrashed bedroom afterward looks beautiful. I loved the set dressing there. I did take note of that. I paused and I was like, damn, they did a good job having her wreck her fucking bedroom. Anyway, Langdon had thoughts. <laughs> yeah, it's just that it's obviously this starts touching on something that's going to be a lot closer to a lot of people's experience in real life, either in their own family or in the family of friends or an extended family or stuff like that. And it he this, I think, hits at one of the most powerful bits of Cone is as much as he's known in certain spaces as being wildly imaginative, like almost post Philip K. Dick uh, or post Borges style metafictive. Most of his stories are metafictive mysteries where there's a stated mystery, but then there is a second metaphysical mystery underneath the stated one does, does this really beautiful braiding, very Philip K. Dick kind of stuff. This other element that's prominent in his work is this intense, intense humanity in the same way that like, in the same way that like Christ on the cross witnessing and bearing the sins of the world, or Christ in the desert witnessing the sins of the world and then on the cross experiencing the sins of the world, that kind of humanity of, like, compassion as in suffering with, that in these moments he strips out the um, the surrealism and he strips out the mm-hmm. metafiction and he gives you a very sophisticated view of this kind of intense and very real and very traumatic familial pain and this tremendous 
sense of breach of trust and breach of uh, the integrity of the body and the trust of the body, uh, both the body as in like the physical body, but also of the home, the house as an embodiment of a home. Like he's the way that in those moments he goes into a profound sense of negative space and openness. He doesn't go terribly explicit here and doesn't need to. He gives you these couple of very real feeling lines, these very real feeling images, and that if you've ever seen someone in this kind of intense sorrow grappling with this stuff, it just, it fucking hits you. Because it's like, oh my god, that's what, like, that's what my cousin looked like when she found out that blank. And it's just like, it's here that he starts getting... As much as previous episodes may have lampooned, or certain episodes may have lampooned senses of delusion or lack of reality, like the the previous episode certainly did. The juxtaposition, the tonal juxtaposition here is, as Ian was saying kind of prior to this call, kind of everything that Cone can do within a two-episode span, from the ultra-wacky and surreal to the ultra-realist and tremendous uh, sense of human pain and compassion. But through this, you also get the same way that the sense of delusion was almost redemptive in uh, Double Lips, of an escape into a life that this woman thought she would never be able to have and now could experience. Obviously, it gets more complicated than that, but it's it's much less cut and dry in Double Lips whether, whether either life would be the preferable reality. They both seem to have their ups and downs. They're different, but this one is a lot more sympathetic to the notion of lattices of reality and the notion of escape from reality because it's mm-hmm. this is someone who desperately needs an escape because reality is so dire and so painful that right and the way that he's able to to self-critique in that way that like he has back to back like here's a boy who's escaping a middle-class life to go into a fantasy world where he then commits acts of violence against his peers because he's a fucking dipshit but then here's someone who in a certain way, has has earned through no fault of her own the right to get out and go beyond this and not be trapped within, like, the notion of the nobility of, like, I don't live with delusion. And it's like, do you want to face this kind of thing unvarnished? Like, with no power mm-hmm. and no hope of escape? Like, is that more noble? It feels very much like the back half of Don Quixote in that way, where... Where similarly, the f- the first half of Don Quixote is this like comedic masterpiece, or it's fucking hysterical. But then the back half is this tremendously painful existential novel, where the priest finally breaks through Don Quixote's mind and convinces him, "No, you're actually not this beautiful romancing guy. You've actually ruined your whole life, and everyone thinks you're a laughing stock, and your family's in ruins, and you don't have any money left. Aren't you happy that you've returned to reality?" And he goes, "Holy fuck, you've ruined my whole life. Like I'm dying, and now I feel miserable and ashamed." And the big redemptive thing at the end of Don Quixote is he turns to Dulcinea, this otherwise normal-looking woman that he swears is the most beautiful woman in the world and that he'll serve. And his dying words are basically like, and you're still just as beautiful now as when I served you. And th- I don't know, this this gave me very Don Quixote-type yeah. vibes. So I, I, think I did maybe... not expect to get Don Quixote out of this one, but once again, glad to have you here. <laughs> Jesus. I went into so much debt to get this degree. I went into so much debt. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> I think it's worth thinking about like what 
is Tycho escaping into? Um, because I think this is a very interesting yes. uh, choice on the episode's part, which is that she, we see her mostly in the present during the storm, which obviously is like a loaded and fairly obvious metaphor. Um, but she is constantly imagining her youth prior to this moment of understanding who her father actually is. And she's recalling these moments of her childhood where she's like her father is being kind and loving and protecting and all of the good parts uh, that she associates with her family and her home. So it's almost like the past childhood is the thing that she's attempting to escape into instead of living in the present as a teen with this now like insane loss of innocence that has occurred over the course of this episode. I think that's an interesting thing to contrast with, as you're describing the sort of frivolous fantasy of the JRPG. And instead that there's this other type of escape into one's own past uh, that can't, you cannot recover. You know, it's constantly slipping away from Tycho, but she's desperate to try and hold on to some version of herself that has not been uh, corrupted in this way. Can I ping pong off that? Please. I, that, I agree with everything you said, but I think it's also worth noting that there's like a really, another cruel juxtaposition in this episode. And that's the juxtaposition of psychologically what she's trying to escape into, and then materially what she's escaping into. Because in escaping Hirukawa, she's escaping into homelessness. Like, mm -hmm. it took me like my third watch of this episode to realize, oh, this says so much more about like compassion toward the ordeal of homelessness in Japan than Tokyo Godfathers did. Sometimes the previous episodes I've, I've thought are, are con playing the hits and not actually improving on the original in this, I think this episode says so much more about, um, you know, people who, who have no homes and how like, What's the alternative? You know, say, oh, look at that poor girl on the street. Why doesn't she just go home? Well, what's she going home to? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And and then also, you know, as an American, I, I know you said the storm is like this, like sort of maybe a bit on the nose metaphor. Right. But unless you've lived in, I don't know, New Orleans, the Gulf Coast, I don't think in as, as an American, you really have like a perspective on the the threat that an oceanic storm can can do to even a middle class person, yeah. right? Whereas well, in Japan, I, I, I will just more. say uh, the climate has changed that for New York in the last few years. <laughs> fair enough. That's that's fair. That's I think that's very fair. But it's but it's been that case for Tokyo forever for for fucking ever. Yes, and imagine true. imagine being homeless mm -hmm. in Tokyo in typhoon season, uh, a newly homeless teenage girl um i don't know that i know I, i'm you're really talking glad about the you, darkness it, it, it that really hit me i'm really glad you brought up the tokyo godfathers comparison because i think that there are a few nods to it like one the the old woman's shelter is very reminiscent of a of the shelters that uh the characters in tokyo godfathers constructed for themselves um, we have Tycho at a bridge thinking of killing herself, which is, right. you know, something that is played sort of for laughs in Tokyo Godfathers, but is here um, played very straight and very dark. Uh, and she sees the old woman as herself, the way that Gein in Tokyo Godfathers sees himself as the, the old man, the old man who's dying. 
And so he's re- Crown Royal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's even something that's kind of uh, replicated here, which is like the giving the old homeless person a vice for in exchange for information, you know? Yeah. In this case, it's nicotine in Tokyo Godfather's case, it's alcohol. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think you're, you're totally right that this is a case of, uh, not just reiterating, um, his older work, but shifting the perspective and showing the, the way in which it is not uh, a family friendly romp on Christmas. You know, it, right. it is in fact something that is extremely life threatening during typhoon season. That's a, a really right. good and, point. Well, and Tokyo Godfathers was a movie where apparently everyone is invincible and no one can die. Right. right? Like, yeah. people, like, Gene gets like ground up against like the concrete of an overpass while the car he's on is like apparently going like, I don't know, 30, 40 miles an hour. Right. It should turn a human being into pulp. He's fine. Um, whereas, like, very pointedly, and to its credit, paranoia agent is a series where like yeah grievous bodily harm is just like it's part of the pitch mm-hmm. is like you get hit in the head with a piece of metal and get brain damage yes. right yeah um anyway i don't know if i had like a point in that but i think like the stakes here suit the subject matter that he's addressing and it elevates the material right to, I- to me I'm gonna I'm gonna synthesize that with with Langdon's point about um this is the first time in the show that I think really, 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 really you would understand why someone would want Shonen Bat to show up. You know? Like we we don't have the same sympathy for Yuichi. Even like it's that this kid deserved to get, you know, he's such a taken piece down of shit. a peg. Like, <laughs> like he's such he's a, a little personality fucker. disorder. He's a yeah. he's a he's a deeply sick kid and like what he needs is treatment, not bludgeoning. I'd, Although, I'd clock would, the kid. I'm an adult man. Like I'd to do see it. Him bludgeoning. I it would be easy too cuz I'm an adult man and he's a child. I could take him so easy. I just <laughs> bat, just bat, bat. <laughs> Um you know, I, I think that like with each of the characters that we've seen shown in bad attack so far, there is this kind of like comeuppance or um, some degree of like, that's wild. But I, and I understand that they think of themselves to be in this like extremely pressure filled situation that they'd want some way out of. But this is the episode that makes you like really feel it. And like, I think to to put this one, the episode after we now know that like some version of Shonen Bad is in jail and yet still people are calling out to have this happen because the need is so great uh, to escape from how fucking awful reality can be. I think that's such a great way of like turning up the temperature on the whole thing, you know, like to to set this after the point where logistically speaking, you know, Shonen Bat should not be able to show up. And yet he does in two places at once. <laughs> and not only does he not only does he show up, but we get and I wish we could say more about this, but unfortunately they only touch on it in the grace note at the end of this episode and obviously go much more into it by the end. God, I'm looking forward to you guys covering the ending of this show. Um, but there's the subtle implication that it that he is either embodied in the typhoon or or something and that the destruction the full destruction of her home is part mm-hmm. of lil slugger 
doing this kind of deliverance, which is a massive escalation in terms of power scale from this from this figure that we've and sort of matches the uh, bewildering irreality of him. Yeah, right. Like we're seeing that it is not just that he can show up, uh, but he does grant a wish of a kind, which is that the home is destroyed. Uh, Tycho's memory is destroyed. Uh, so she does return to a state of uh, childlike innocence uh, at the very end. Although it, I do think that this ending is extremely dark because she's still with her father at the end. It's just that she can't remember what happened now. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that you that you brought that up, because I, I, I think the finale of this episode is this devastating, like tri- triple reveal. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the first reveal is one that I think we've maybe. I think that we've maybe uh, glossed over a little bit, but, you know, this is an episode where we finally get to see the detectives detectiving really, really well. Like once they find the old woman, they get to do the detective thing. Good. Just call mm-hmm. love cops, not love cops. We'll get into it later. Um, but when they reinterrogate Tsukiko, Ikari, even though his his counter version of the events doesn't necessarily map onto reality or does it he does make a pretty convincing case that she's not this like innocent bystander that we were introduced to in the first episode like Mm -hmm. even if it's not like so literal as the way he claims of her being like a self-made victim he he does a pretty good job of being like you're not the main character you're not the protagonist like you're a bad guy in this and i'm gonna figure it out and the only reason his like logic train can't come to its conclusion is because shonen bad intervenes right so there's your first reveal is like oh we can't trust her second reveal is oh paranormal element confirmed after we've maybe spent like the last two episodes disconfirming it that's weird but then the the last reveal is and, and this is a subtle one but I think this is like maybe the darkest element of this episode is up until now, there's been this weird, uneasy undertone that maybe getting shown in bad. It is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the, the implication is that like Yuichi's d- disorder has, has like lapsed or retreated in some way. He seems more well adjusted after having been attacked. Um, Harumi seems much more functional in her life and her marriage, you, you know, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Right. There's this idea that like, um, you, you know, these attacks have, have done good for these people. Right. right. The and, shonen and, bad attack that uh, Hirokawa experiences kind of gets the, the Yakuza off his back, you know? Right. D- totally. But I don't think there's any sensible, like positive read of a, something good for uh taiko yeah getting like losing her memory because she doesn't this is a hard thing like as a as a victim but it's like do you want to feel better do you want to heal do you want to even forgive maybe yeah you want all those things do you want your innocence back if that were possible magically this is a magical world in some ways maybe you do right but what you don't want to do is 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 lose like is lose like the memory of, of being wronged because without that, there can't be justice. Right. And like this ending confirms that like shown in bad is not an agent of justice. Like 
it is not good to take this person who's been in in many ways like sexually predated upon by their father wipe their memory of him and then put him put her back in his care yeah Yeah. like that's awful it is a it's a monkey paw wish it is not a benevolent wish and it it touches on one of the the deeper themes that one he's played with with a lot of his career but here takes a substantially darker turn so in in other in other things like perfect blue like paprika like uh, millennium actress the question of the interplay of reality and fantasy what what is the line of reality or is perhaps it a big self-generating wheel it's a lot more i don't want to necessarily say uninflected but he he plays it a bit more even-handed that this is a complex relationship it's not necessarily a positive or a negative especially by this point with shonen bat representing in some way like an almost like angelic archon of irreality that you can summon into your life to rearrange the reality of existence he he's sort of the physical embodiment or archetypal form of the escape from reality and the return to reality that it's it's never strictly better like this this is his harshest condemnation in a lot of ways of of art and the capacity for art to really like it won't fix you it will not erase your problems this is like and we've seen it in his work through films through novels through manga i almost said through anime you'll get to that part later very literally (laughs) you'll get to that part later Um, (laughs) but like so he's quite literally made an entire body of work out of can art any art in any capacity fix or heal you and he's played kind of he's come with different answers but here he says a vehement no and and Mm -hmm. that's that's hard for certain people to face i don't think he's wrong now again he doesn't do it necessarily it's not that art doesn't change you like the if you take i tend to interpret his his play of reality there uh, as a pretty standard question of the artist about what am i doing is this worthwhile Am I helping the world in any way by making art or would I be better off being a doctor? Am I being a bourgeois, wasteful piece of shit by thinking that my delusions are worth something to random people more so than putting my skills and labor to work? Here, at least, he's being his most acerbically self-critical. Really, only Opus gets into the same ballpark of being like, I really have serious doubts about whether I'm improving the world. That gets at something really interesting. Because I think my interpretation is ever so slightly different, Langdon. I'm intrigued. Because I think the, the, the common thread between like the way that people like react to Shonen Bat slash maybe Maromi's always there, right? Yeah. Yeah. A very but, pointed, very creepy Maromi shot in this episode, yeah. too, where as they're uh, the the cops are taking Tsukiko off. Maniwa looks back and sees Maromi staring him dead in the eyes. Uh, yeah. And I love that you could start to see, like, maybe Maniwa's starting to crack a bit himself. <laughs> he, right. Is that little bear actually alive? <laughs> well, well, we'll get into the. I've got some things about the little bear here, too. But <laughs> what I was going to say about this is, like, the, the common thread is that what Kaiko's situation is worse but she's comforted in the aftermath of the attack. And that Mm -hmm. is 
that's the common thread is that like even even if like getting attacked by shonen bad is bad it feels better than the anxiety you're in right before right right yeah and so i think his his interpretation is more and i don't know how i feel about this all the time like i I'm not the most strident fucking um, it's not aesthetic asceticism is not what I'm talking about. Stoicism. Like I'm not the most strident, like stoic in the world, but I, I think he's coming at, into this more of a perspective of like the things that make you feel better aren't good for you. It, in There's some a, like ways a, a narcotic quality to, to Shonen bad here where like, yeah. right. You will ease the pain that you're feeling at that moment, but at what cost? in the long run at the cost for for everybody Mm -hmm. right i almost interpret like shonen bat now as like a um sort of a riff on pennywise from stephen king's it right i can see that yeah go for that that please dig in more well so like stephen king when he wrote it he wrote it not long after he actually wrote a nonfiction book about like the nature of of horror and if you like read it which also has weird kid stuff um yeah (laughs) very pointedly like in in it there are like long passages where like it's basically stephen king having a dialogue with the reader through the characters talking about like what is the nature of fear what is fear's use what what is fear good is fear bad fear Mm -hmm. is entertaining but fear is also kind of like something that happens to kids but doesn't happen so much when you're an, an adult, right? Like he's 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 interrogating all these things, and his like his avatar for that conversation is Pennywise the clown, which is actually a Lovecraftian alien entity. Spoilers for it; you probably already knew that. Um, but it's a pretty basic idea slash maybe a ripoff of Freddy Krueger. Uh, Pennywise feeds on fear, right? Pennywise feeds on the fear of its victims and embodies the things that they are afraid of that's like the manner in which that paranormal entity attacks shonen bad is similar in that it 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 comes to people like a uh super emotional state and seems that the more paranoid the more anxious people are the more potent it seems to get attacking two people at once at from miles or blocks or however long away the Mm. storm knocking down the whole house right so like it, it does seem to be at this point in the story that like shonen bad is getting stronger right i think shonen bad is more about anxiety than fear they're not the same thing yeah right like panic is not being afraid of a thing right they're like pennywise can't become an amorphous thing that has no embodiment yeah for for anyone who's experienced a like I, i hate to use these kinds of terms but a real ass panic attack you learn pretty quickly the way that it is uh, and it, it's classified in the similar kind of way. It's a miniature psychotic episode in that it it's a complete right. detachment from the material fundament of that which has made you anxious. It becomes a self-driving engine of pure experience. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no tie to it. And in that state, you will do anything to make this stop. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been on both sides of, of, of that. I can't speak for anyone else. But like, I, I do know what it's like to have been there when like you can be having a panic attack massive you know massive cardiac yeah heartbeats and have someone who cares about you come to be like what are you so afraid of and the honest answer is i i don't know Mm -hmm. i I don't there is no good answer for that any any anymore and so like i i I sort of see shonen bad as maybe satoshi khan's iteration of 
of the Pennywise the Clown idea. That being like, what if this isn't fear of anything? What if this is just like the anxiety that is in the air endemic to modernity? So R- right, it, it definitely is. It definitely is a modernist riff on that kind of. So he's that he by this point he's fully become a yokai. Like it, it's sort of endemic that he's <laughs> he's straight sure. up like a weird trickster spirit thing. Uh, yeah, now, I, I would like to to, to point out um, just as we're, along as we're noting animal metaphors, the uh, the kid that gets arrested, his name is uh, he in the like old man's prophecies. He's linked with the fox. And the fox is like a classic trickster animal in Japanese mythology. Uh, so that should both perhaps lead us to maybe believe that this this kid is maybe a trickster, is maybe not the real deal, but also that Shonen Bat in general embodies a certain kind of larger trickster god energy to him and there's there's this yeah. there's this common trope within within these kinds of trickster spirits of the melmothian bargain which is a, an evolution of the faustian bargain so the faustian bargain mm-hmm. is you great you get great power but at a great cost the melmothian bargain is from melmoth the wanderer to fucking fantastic novel if like super recommended to everyone it's fucking great um the prose is crazy Did you know langdon's on a book podcast did you know that I spent a lot of money reading a lot of books and I'm not sure if that was a good idea or not? <laughs> I'm going to get my money back eventually. But the evolution there is that Melmoth takes on, is is implied to be the wandering Jew from the Bible, um, is cast to walk earth uh, for all eternity in the wake of spurning Christ uh, on his passage mm. to, to Golgotha. And... It's never really confirmed, but it's like he has this tremendous power, but he knows that he will be damned. And the only and he can fly, he can summon lightning, he can do all these kinds of satanic spells and shit like that. The only way to free himself of this burden is for someone to knowingly take it onto themselves. And that means they have to know that they will be damned. That they'll live forever. And that means they're going to watch everyone they know die. They have to know all of that and say yes. So most of Melmoth is him engineering these increasingly dire situations where the only avenue of escape would be to take this bargain in the hopes that he can get someone to, in the pits of desperation, take on knowing damnation because it will save them from a momentary harm. And most most of the tales terminate with people saying, fuck you. And then they find grace in God uh, and Melmoth is like, fucking Christians! Um, but, which, which is really funny. Um, but it, this this feels very much like that, where it's like, it, it we see stories like that recurring a lot. It, it's become sort of a, a post-Melmoth archetype, at least in Western literature. Obviously, we have mm-hmm. a d- different track record, but similar archetypes within within Eastern literature, of the spirit that preys upon desperation. And they offer you a knowing shit deal, but they have to get you to a point where you're desperate enough that the shit deal is worth it because you want whatever's in this hand more than you're scared of whatever's over here. And it obviously then being a kind of moral lesson or an abstract moral lesson about like acts of desperation and the long tail effects of that kind of like that ravenous hunger for something can can actually lead you to to like quite unwise courses of action Mm -hmm. yeah that is a a perfect summation i think of what's going on here in paranoia agent with shonen bat like that's (laughs) spot on i love that 
not to just jump on the recommendation train for a series that we've spoken about before and may or may not do in the future, not confirming, not denying. Um, <clears throat> if you've never seen Madoka Magica, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, maybe maybe just uh, put some Sailor Moon ripoffs in that novel, and you've got a pretty good idea for a show there. If you don't invite me on that show, I will kill myself. I didn't say we were doing it, Langdon. Weren't you paying attention? I'm just saying hypothetically. It, it blood will be on your hands. Damn, that show has at least one twist every episode, and by episode ten, you're like, I don't know what else can be twisted at this point, and the hits keep coming. Perfect. The last twist is the ending is not super satisfying, but whatever. Well, they give you a whole fucking movie that's a whole bonus ending there, just like Evangelion. Which I haven't seen. It's great. How the fuck have you not seen it? It's been out for a decade. Langdon, I have only so much time in the day. I spend a lot of it writing a column with you. Speaking of spending time, um... I, are there any like last things from this pair of episodes that we want to hit before we let our guest go and let the two of you continue to bicker about your metal column on uh, on your own time? Um, well, so don't try to extricate yourself out of this, Ian. You're on the same group text thread we are. The only person here we get to apologize to is Cat Jones. That's right. That's quite true. Your sweetheart, Cat Jones, is definitely you. not listening to this, but uh, hope hope you're doing. Hope you're doing good. We're going to convert her to workshop the whole thing on her phone. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So I, I don't have too much more to say about these particular two episodes, but I think that like that, that moment that you described the sort of sublime moment of Tsukiko getting struck by an invisible assailant. Yeah. I, I, that to me is like the, the biggest exclamation point moment of the show so far. And I feel like it is the thing that opens up the second half of paranoia agent. Um, and things get even weirder from here. Like now, now that this thing is uncorked, it's, it's just going to spill out over the course of the rest of the show in a really, really, really cool way. So I, I don't know, again, any sort of closing thoughts on this pair or anything else that we can move on to, letting Langdon tell people where to find all of his wonderful work. Well, the last thing I was going to say is because I, I, I never did quite finish my segment, um, which is not that important because I think the, the casting on uh, Fear of a Direct Hit is not quite so impressive as the casting on The Holy Warrior. That's interesting. Um, it, well, that is what's interesting about it. The director of uh, Fear of a Direct Hit is a guy named Kojiro Tsuroka. He doesn't he doesn't have uh, another directing credit after this episode. Period. Never again. Never no, again. That's wow. never again. His he was assistant director on The Cat Returns that same year. Okay, so beautiful. he's a, a it's beautiful, but it's B-list Ghibli. It is. You know, it's It has a bipedal and, talking cat who wears a hat. I'm in. I mean, that's cute. I like that. I'm um, a Susian. I love that shit. Cats and, for, and hats? Fucking yes. <laughs> now that's a Malthusian bargain. Um, <laughs> bargain. Make, make enough chaos in your parents house that you'll willingly invite the cat in knowing what it is i didn't even need chaos i wanted a kitten i'm the i'm the, the boob here um, anyway Tsuroka, whose last name i still can't fucking pronounce um mostly an in-between animator he's unspirited away but he's an in-betweener oh. jinro the wolf brigade but he's an in-betweener so weird that he's worked on some cool stuff uh but mostly in like a hyper limited 
capacity. His career basically ends right after this. The only thing he does after this is um, something called the Perfect World of Kai as second unit director. Never heard of that. Uh, bet they like it on my anime list since I've never fucking heard of it. But yeah, weird. This is like, what a weird career that like, oh, you did this episode of this show and that's your last um, directing credit. I, I think that's strange. Yeah, very odd. I I would love to know what happened to the guy and, you know, why his career did not take off, whether he wanted it to, or that's it's that's a huge question mark. That's really interesting. Something to contemplate as we wait for the next episode of this podcast. But before, before we get there, Langdon, why don't you tell the our, our beautiful listeners where they can find your your beautiful words? Most recently, uh I'm active writing on treble zine uh where i write super frequently about all different kinds of music like i just finished a year-long big project on u2 which was a kind of follow-up to a similar project for uh rush wrote about the newest shamir record there wrote about um the trenta molar like gothy um shoegaze edm kind or not edm ebm uh kind of mm -hmm. record um all different kinds of stuff, like no real limits. They write about jazz a lot, prog, all that stuff. I have a metal column with with Joe here over at Consequence of Sound, where we write about like super underground weirdo shit. Uh, I write at where else? Where else do I write? Oh, I have I have Death Sentence. That's my uh, my book, uh, extreme metal and uh, Marxist politics uh, podcast. I'm a big fucking weirdo there. Read a lot of books. Fuck load of books. Recently, we dropped four episodes in four days, and the shortest one was an hour long. Workaholics. We read a yeah, whole fucking book. Wild boys. <laughs> a whole fucking book for every episode. It is an insane burden for so little money. We do it just for the love of the game, baby. And you work a customer-facing job. I get to listen to audiobooks. I don't even know how you do this shit. Yeah, I, well, I don't have hobbies. I literally only do things that that land in front of people it's uh it's very taxing on my soul i went into so much debt joseph <laughs> guessing on this podcast isn't going to help you out of that that's right you know that that's right no it's all passion projects no i'm gonna die poor i know that i embrace it i've started uh i've been writing um short fiction again in actually in secret for the past couple of years and i have a couple hundred pages of that that i need to shop around to people but if you ask me nicely for it i'll just give it to you i don't give a fuck i've have, i've have a job i just want people people to read my shit it's weird some of it's sad some of it's crazy well that's i think uh means that it goes quite well with the pair of episodes that we had you on to discuss today oh good lord um, yes and so i i do encourage our listeners to definitely listen to death sentence i'm a, I'm a big fan even if i don't know the books that y'all are talking about i just like to hear you very intelligent people uh, wax intelligently about intelligent stuff and some new tunes every once in a while too it's cool so yeah definitely check out langdon's podcast and his writing and maybe e email him nicely for some for some fiction as well yeah next up episode seven and eight of paranoia agent very excited i am a big fan of episode seven uh, I am also a big fan of episode seven an episode not enough people talk about. And um, episode eight may just be uh, the answer to a, a drinking game that I just invented and no one is playing. <laughs> um, I'm hammered. And, and until then, until your next uh, delightful sip in that drinking game, sweet dreams, everyone. Sweet dreams.